Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Christchurch London Central Service. How are you doing today? Marvellous. Well, uh, many, many congratulations, if that's the right word, to those of you who've had your little munchkins dedicated this morning. Great to be part of your day, and I hope you and your families have a wonderfully special day together. Uh, For anyone who's not aware, over the course of this term, we as a church have been working through the Old Testament book of Proverbs, which is an ancient book packed full of practical wisdom that can hopefully help us live the wisest life possible. And it's worth saying that this wisdom was thought to be so revolutionary at the time that people would travel far and wide just to hear the author Solomon in person and to pay him tribute. Uh, One such devotee was the Queen of Sheba, Uh, She of Handel's famous musical piece and various pieces of art through history, uh, probably from now modern-day Ethiopia. So great was Solomon's wisdom thought to be. And so over the last couple of months, we have wrestled with a number of topics that Proverbs raises. Uh, Things like issues of justice, mastering your appetites, sex and relationships, handling your finances, the world of work. And uh, today, somewhat appropriately for a dedication service, We are talking about the tricky topic of parenting, something that despite having three children myself, I feel utterly unqualified to speak about. And one of the reasons that is the case, and one of the reasons this subject matters so much and is so important, is Proverbs acknowledges that parenting is very, very difficult. And there is a whole load of research to back this up. And if you have children or are expecting children, right here, right now, is the most depressing moment of the talk. Uh, If you put up the next slide, uh, study after study after study has shown that basically when you have kids, life and marital satisfaction basically plummets. Uh, it, It begins to level off at five once they're out the door and into school, and you start thinking, oh, I can do this parenting thing. And then they become teenagers and it gets even worse. All the, there was a yes over there, I heard. Um, all the way through to around about 10 years later when they start leaving home, and only then does life start getting better. Happy Sunday, parents! Woo! Um, one of the blunter ways that Solomon puts this in Proverbs is chapter 22 and verse 15. He says this, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's what parents have to deal with. And I guess to some extent, we've all experienced this. Uh, A few weeks ago, my wife and I put on a joint birthday party for our two little girls, age uh, six and three. We thought, we'll save money, get all their friends and their parents over to our home at the same time. What could possibly go wrong? And in the middle of this party, uh, this five-year-old monster walks up to me. And I've never seen her in my life before, but she suddenly starts staring at me in a rather creepy way. And uh, everyone stops to watch what this guy is doing. And eventually, I break the awkward moment by saying, uh, you okay, sweetheart? You okay, darling? Everyone goes quiet. She looks at me, points, and says, yeah, yeah. My dad's got that belly, too, she says. I'm like, what? (laughs) Stop looking at my belly, by the way. I'm going (laughs) to hide behind the lectern. Tell you what, for free, she did not win past the parcel. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) So... uh, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. I'm going to stay behind here for the rest of the talk. You're all, I can see you. You're trying to look. What does Proverbs say? I'm sucking in now. I'm sucking in. What does Proverbs say about how to parent well? Well, in short, if I could simplify 31 chapters down and everything it says about parenting, 
Proverbs says we need two things to parent well, and they are discipline and affection, boundaries and love. And to give this talk some structure, I want to plot these two qualities in a very simple two-by-two two diagram. And if you can't see this at the back, don't worry, there'll be equivalent slides that come up on the screen. I want to put discipline on the vertical axis, and I'll put a little heart for love or affection on the horizontal axis. And interestingly, 2,700 years after the book of Proverbs was written, psychologists today are still using these four quadrants to describe the four primary parenting styles and where we can go very badly wrong. And for those of you who don't have children, this talk is still relevant for you, and I'll explain why a little later on. But actually, a combination of these parenting styles have shaped every single person in this room, because nobody spends all their time in one of these quadrants. I, as a dad, move from square to square, but they have shaped our lives and some of the issues that we carry into adult life. You might even be able to spot yourself, and I want to talk later about how we can break free of those things. Discipline and affection. And it is interesting if you look through history. Different cultures have often tended to emphasize one of these qualities to the detriment of the other and have got themselves into a whole load of trouble as a result. So I want to start in this top left-hand quadrant. Uh, this is what psychologists call authoritarian parenting. High levels of discipline, low levels of affection. And if I could generalize for a moment, I would say this was my grandparents' generation. I remember my granddad telling me how fierce the discipline was in those days. The affection, not so much. Uh, it's quite scary to think of, actually, in the 1920s and into the 1930s, some of the world's leading psychologists and scientists, particularly Freudians and behaviorists, but other scientists too, they were united in their conviction that highly affectionate parenting was detrimental to the development of the child. Uh, in 1928, a leading scientist called John Watson wrote a book called The Psychological Care of the Infant and Child. This was a bestseller, sold hundreds of thousands of copies. In this book, this leading scientist outlined his dream for the future, where one day all babies would be raised on baby farms away from the corrupting influence of mummy and daddy. He said, until these baby farms could be constructed, he said this, don't pick babies up when they cry, don't cuddle or coddle them, just dole out benefits and punishments for each good and bad action. I bet he was fun at a party, don't you think? <laughs> Goodness me. A couple of reflections on this. Firstly, I find it interesting that a book that is over 2,700 years old can have more wisdom in it than some of the leading scientific voices of the day. Second reflection would be this. As we look back on the 1920s, I imagine all of us think, how could they have that blind spot in their culture? Makes me wonder what blind spots we have in our culture today. When celebrities galore tell us, this is how you should live, should we drink it all in? Maybe not. High levels of discipline, low levels of affection. Now, before any of us think we would never be so callous to drift into this quadrant, I want to let you know I'm, I'm here often. I think most of us are, not just in the way that I relate to my kids, but actually in the way I relate to other people. I am often here when I am tired and grumpy. Because when I am tired and grumpy, I care a lot less about how everybody else in my world is doing. My affection is not so high. And I can retreat into this style. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, it's mid-December, about this time of year, Christmas tree was up, and I was just in a really foul mood. And I came back from work, and the kids were just being 
a little bit naughty, but they ended up breaking something, something like a, like a mobile phone or something, and I just snapped. I was like, right, I said, right, I'm cancelling Christmas. And I began to take presents from under the tree and put them in the bin. You're not supposed to do that. That's bad. That is authoritarian parenting. No reasoning with the child. No obvious, understandable consequences. No caring what's going on in their hearts. Just command and control. A few characteristics of this relational style are coming up on the screen behind me. A couple of things that this relational style leads to in particular. Firstly, I would say pressure. In particular, pressure to perform. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment the child that has grown up basically only receiving affirmation for obeying the rules. Or maybe they only get love when they do really well at school or well at sport. What happens is habits are formed that shape them into adult life. And it leads to this chronic pressure to achieve and succeed and ultimately this nagging sense of emptiness when success does not lead to the love that they long for. I wonder if there is any person in this room right now and you feel this burden to actually achieve in life and this, oh, but it doesn't somehow satisfy me. Maybe that's a product of things that have happened in your past. Because love equals performance when you relate this way. Second thing in particular, not the only thing, but the second thing in particular that this leads to is the opposite. Rather than, I'm going to obey the rules, I've got to succeed, I've got to perform, it's a reaction against them. What I might call rebellion. I want you to imagine for a moment you have a boss whose primary relational style is authoritarian. I had one once, before I worked for Christchurch, a real bully. What did it lead to? Well, a couple of observations. Firstly, whenever the bully was away, everybody slacked in the office because we were just glad he wasn't around. Second thing it led to, things like gossip about him behind his back because nobody likes somebody who relates this way. And so what happened to me was I lost some of my love of work and people. I became more negative, critical, and cynical and less of the person I am really supposed to be. It's the fruits of relating this way. And there is a whole load of research that says when you parent your children this way, you may get better behavior in the short term because they're just so scared of you, so they do what you say. But ultimately, behavior gets worse over time because they react against it. Authoritarian parenting, high discipline, low affection. Now, in many ways, and I'm generalizing here, but my parents' generation reacted against this. They saw the limitations, but in some ways, they went too far the other, other way, and they ended up in this quadrant down here. This is what I might call indulgent parenting. Psychologists sometimes call this permissive parenting. High levels of love, low boundaries. Uh, this will be the 1960s all over. Free love, no cost. Uh, one of the leading child-rearing voices during this period, particularly in the 60s, though he went on for several decades, was an American called Dr. Benjamin Spock. And uh, one of uh, his best-selling books was the common sense book of baby and childcare. Uh, Spock was an American, and as the states came out of the Second World War, it became more and more prosperous, and there was a greater appetite for luxury and indulgence. And that got applied to the area of child-rearing. Spock's basic premise was this. See the child as an individual, as an adult, as an independent from childhood. They don't need boundaries. We've seen how they can go very badly wrong. It's all about the love. And there is still a legacy from this approach today. Uh, Joy and I began to realize this as we talked about how we would discipline 
our own children. Some of you may remember me sharing this. It was actually five years ago. But we decided to go for the naughty chair or the time-out spot, a special place where our children could go and think about the bad things they have done. And it turns out this whole area has been hugely commercialized. You can go online and buy your very own naughty chair or time-out spot. Uh, but there are some parents today who feel that the naughty chair could damage their child's fragile sense of ego and self-esteem. So instead, there's a chair that says, time to think about the things you do, but always remember, I love you. There's, there's a similar chair that somebody says, I am loved. I am loved. I mean, it doesn't really work. You've been so bad. Sit on the I am loved chair. Uh, there's actually a naughty chair you can get which just says, oops. Oops. Uh, I have a philosophical problem with this chair. Uh, a few years ago, I came back from a conference uh, to find out that my boy Brody had spilled boiling hot water on my Apple MacBook Pro computer. And th thank you, you feel my pain. And mummy, my wife Joy, had tried to hide the sin by hair drying the computer and had inadvertently melted the keyboard. I want you to know that it was not the oops chair that I was looking for in that moment. I was, I was looking for the sit here while I go online and see how much I can sell you for chair. That's what I wanted. Uh, you, you can actually now get gender-specific naughty chairs. So there's a boys' chair. There's a boys' chair that says this: "Boys will be boys, or so they say. But I'll raise my boy to be a man someday." Shouting isn't nice, and kicking hurts. No one likes their face rubbed in the dirt. So boys that fight and kick and shout are boys that will sit in timeout. That's the boys' chair. Then there's a girls' chair in the same range that simply says, "Princess, princess." <laughs> Gender inequality is alive and well <laughs> in the world of child-rearing. Now, we have probably all met parents who basically think that little prince and princess can do no wrong. Indulgent parenting characteristics include few rules or boundaries, inconsistent rules, rarely enforcing the consequences. Now, these parents often use bribery or gifts to get the kid to do what they want them to do. Guilty, often little structure. These parents can't bear their kids' unhappiness, often try to be mates rather than parents. Uh, there's an overemphasis, this is interesting, bottom one, on protecting the kids' self-esteem. Uh, in the 1970s in particular, there was a huge movement called the self-esteem movement. And the basic philosophy was, if you want to have a good life, and therefore you want to raise good kids, make sure self-esteem is really high. And because boundaries, being told no, can make us feel bad, oh, I can't always get my own way, because that can kind of damage us, let's have as few boundaries as possible. And that thinking might sound silly to us today, but I just want you to know, I can, I can drift into this box all the time. I, I'm often here. I mean, silly example of this, my, my kids this week um, went off to their rooms for like 20 minutes. Like, what are they doing? They're quiet. They came out uh, earlier this week with their Christmas lists for Santa. And my seven-year-old boy came up to me on his list. I should have taken a photo, actually. On his list from Santa was an iPod, no, so, no, sorry, an iPhone, an iPad, a Nintendo Switch, which is like the world's most expensive computer console, and the bottom line was, and a photo frame for grandma, because it's not all about me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm teaching him something. And I'm like, I can't afford any of this. I'm like, God, give me wisdom, God, give me wisdom. And a moment of genius strikes. And I look at Brody and I say, well, look, Brody, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure Santa's really into the, you know, iPhone, iPad, Nintendo Switch kind of business. He's, 
He's more of a, a Lego and a teddy bear kind of guy. <laughs> and uh, Brody looks at me and he thinks hard. He says, well, Daddy, he says, well, I think I've been pretty good this year. I'm going to leave them on the list. <laughs> and then we stare at each other for a long and uncomfortable time. <laughs> and, and eventually, eventually, he's clearly thinking through this period. He says, Daddy, Daddy, I want you to know that if Santa lets me down, and even if Mommy lets me down, I know you will not let me down. <laughs> and then he skips off. I'm like, oh. I'm like, I'm like I want to be the favourite parent. Have, have the phone. Have my phone. Have everything. <laughs> that, that is indulgent parenting right there. Uh, main things indulgent parenting leads to. Entitlement. And ultimately disappointment. Did you ever meet the kid that got everything they wanted when they wanted it? How did that kid turn out? Like my sister. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, if she ever listened to this talk, I, I was the favourite child. I want to be clear on that. Um, but actually, we've all met that child. And in, interestingly, Dr. Benjamin Spock later admitted the limitations of this approach. Because he said what it leads to is parents who are scared to impose on the child and kids who grow up into adults who have a broad disrespect for authority. Because they think that the world owes me something. Uh, in 1954, there was a large survey done. It's actually in America, but similar results over here. One of the questions asked was, do you think of yourself as a highly important person? Are you a big deal? Only 12% of people ticked that box. Mid to late 80s, same survey, same question. Do you think of yourself as a highly important person? Over 80% of people tick that box. Yeah, I'm a big deal. We created generations, basically, that thought the world revolves around me. You know, 40 years later, the self-esteem movement has been shown to be a catastrophic and shambolic failure. It has been shown that high self-esteem does not lead to better grades, it does not lead to better career choices. It doesn't even lead to less incidences, incidences of things like violence and aggression. Because guess what? Sometimes violent people can think very highly of themselves. Sociopaths can have very high self-esteem. What are we doing when we try and raise kids this way? Other things. The disappointment intrigues me. Do you know, there's almost a direct correlation between the more prosperous a nation, the more a nation gets what it wants when it wants, and incidences of depression. Isn't that interesting? Other things this leads to in adult life, an inability to persevere through trial and difficulty. You're tempted to give up when things get tough. You walk away when life is hard. Maybe it's a fruit of your past, because these kids have not learned how to process negative emotions. The other thing this leads to, actually, is much poorer academic performance, because actually no expectations have been placed on the child. Indulgent parenting is fundamentally flawed. Now, before we look at how to do parenting right, there's one other way that we can do parenting wrong, and I'm afraid to say it's more common in 2018 than I would like to admit. And it's the worst of all. It's this bottom left-hand quadrant. This is what some psychologists call neglectful parenting. I'm going to call it absent parenting. Low levels of discipline, low levels of affection. And one of the reasons we can end up here is because we have lost the message in our culture that both raising family, my nuclear family, but also building community is hard work. We think community should be easy. It's not. Building family is hard work, and we don't want hard work. 
And so we can end up just drifting into this box down here. And technology has made it even easier to end up here. Now, I just want to confess, sometimes I just find it easier because just life's busy, life's stressful. I'm just going to put on a movie for the kids to buy myself some time so I can just focus on me. Or I'm around the breakfast table and I know they want to talk to daddy, but I'm just too busy checking email. This happens to community too. You go to the pub any evening and watch how many people are settling for basically shallow community because they're half engaging with the person they're talking to and half on their mobile phone. People don't want the hard work of building family and community. Some of the things this leads to in particular, fear and loneliness. Imagine a child that's being brought up in an environment where basically they get affirmation for staying quiet, keeping out the way not being a hassle to mum and dad. You carry that habit on into adult life, and you're like, I don't want to step out of my comfort zone. I don't want to take a risk. It's just safer to play it safe. There's an epidemic of this in the UK right now. Two-thirds of adults in the UK are reportedly lonely. Two-thirds of people in this city, maybe even two-thirds of people in this room, are feeling lonely. Five million British people say they have no real friends. Isn't that extraordinary? And if I can be gender-specific for a moment, Always risky on a topic like this. But if I can be gender specific, I think men are particularly at risk at drifting down here. Some people think that the Bible endorses a kind of cereal box view of family, where the guy goes off to do work and mum primarily raises the child. The Bible never, ever, ever paints that picture of family. In fact, for your info, if you're interested, that is probably more of a product of the Industrial Revolution. You see, pre the Industrial Revolution, late 1700s into the 1800s, basically, mum and dad would work together. If you work in a shoe shop, if you're cobblers, mum and dad both work in mending shoes. If you're a grocer, mum and dad both help sell groceries. If you're a farmer, mum and dad both work on the farm. That all changes as these factories start springing up, first in the UK, then across the West. And what happened was the men often left home to work in a factory and child rearing increasingly fell on mum. And what happened was a message got into Western culture in particular that child-rearing is primarily a woman's job. The Bible never, ever, ever paints that picture. In fact, I find it interesting that the whole of the book of Proverbs is basically a father writing to his son. Have I given that much wisdom and advice to my own kids? Not even close. Not even close. I've got a lot of work to do if I don't want to drift down here. And technology makes it oh so easy to fall into this quadrant. It's, I, I find these stats frightening, actually. There's a couple of graphs coming up showing what has happened in the West since the iPhone became widely available. Things like socializing and dating have plummeted. We are raising the safest generation in history. And things like sleeplessness, loneliness, and mental health issues are skyrocketing. Because people can stay in their nice little virtual bubbles and they never learn how to interact with other people. That can happen to a community, not just to a nuclear family. Interesting research in the States. Leading research organization called Barna. I mean, well-respected research company. They did a survey of teenagers and they asked teens, if you could change one thing, one thing about mum and dad, what would it be? By far and away, the most common answer was this. I wish mum and dad were on their phones less and would interact with me more. Ouch. 
So what's the answer? How do we not just build a good nuclear family? How do we build good church family? Well, Proverbs says you need both boundaries and you need affection. If you want the technical term, not that it matters that much, this is called authoritative. And it's interesting when you think about what discipline and boundaries are. Because discipline is basically a restriction on my freedom for a greater good. I'm going to have less chocolate. I'm less free to eat chocolate for a greater good of being healthier. Less freedom for a greater good. But it's interesting what this leads to. It leads to this. Freedom. Less freedom leads to more freedom. A lot of research on this. One really interesting experiment that intrigued me where researchers took a load of kids, put them in a playground and said, you're free to play wherever you want. Just roam free. And they watched what happened. This was replicated a number of times. The kids just stayed in the center of the playground because they were a bit scared. I'm not quite sure where I can go and where I can't go. So they, they just stayed where it was safe in the center of this playground. Then all they did, all they did was they built a load of fences around the edge of this playground against the kids. You can roam free. The kids roamed far and wide because they knew where they could go and where they couldn't go. And one of the overwhelming conclusions of this research was this, fences lead to freedom. Fences lead to freedom. You know, one of the critiques I sometimes hear of the Christian faith is this. It's basically a list of do's and don'ts. All the stuff that I secretly want to do that I can't do, and I'm less free as a result. It's a total misunderstanding of how the Bible sees freedom. You see, right now, I am free to drink as much as I want. But if I drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and drink, at the end of that road, I'm suddenly... Not so free. Maybe if I drink under a certain, you know, agreed guidelines, maybe I will be freer to enjoy drink. Perhaps I can put it this way. You know, I, I, I like football. Imagine I play football with freedom to play however I want. I'm going to pick the ball up with my hands if I have a better chance of scoring a goal. I'm going to punch my opponents in the face. If, you know, stuff what the referee says, the game would descend into chaos. It turns out perversely that if I submit myself to an agreed set of principles... I am freer to play a better game of football. Boundaries lead to freedom. So here's the $64 billion question. If any of us are suffering with any of these things, fear and loneliness, entitlement and disappointment, pressure or desire to rebel, is there a way that we can be free of these things? Is there a way that we could find the lasting freedom for myself, for my kids, for this church? Well, I want to suggest wholeheartedly yes. Let me try and explain it this way. 2,000 years ago, there were two prevailing views of God. One was that God's up here. He's basically an angry headmaster. And if you want God to like you, do a lot of good works and he may let you into heaven. Second view is largely, well, the gods do exist, but they don't care about us. So either... We're stuffed, because the gods don't care. Let's just suffer in silence. Or more of an Epicurean worldview, we might as well live for pleasure then. Let's just enjoy life as much as we possibly can. That all changed 2,000 years ago, when a carpenter from Nazareth called Jesus arrived on the scene, and he said, I'm here to reveal what God is really like. He's not a mean headmaster. He's not distant and aloof. He is a loving father. He's crazy about you. But he wants to show you there is something greater than simply living for yourself. Matthew chapter 12, people come to Jesus and they say, well, if this is true, if you're God, give us a sign. 
I'm so often like that with God. If you really are God, answer my prayers, alleviate my suffering, make my life easier. Interestingly, Jesus says, no. Because actually, getting what you want, when you want it, will not make you into the person that you are called to be. It will not lead to the freedom that you long for. Jesus says this, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. If you don't know the story, Old Testament, the only Old Testament character Jesus likens himself to, this guy that basically loses his life, gets thrown into the ocean, eaten by a fish, and gets resurrected three days later. Jesus says, that's the only sign you're going to get. In other words, Jesus is saying, I love you so much. I'm so crazy about you. I'm going to lose my freedom. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to give up my life. But the other side of that is going to be glorious resurrection power. And I want to invite you to follow me. One of the ways that Jesus put it was like this. If I can find the quote, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Lose your life. Lose your freedom if you want to find it. I love you so much. I want you to know there is more to life than simply living for yourself. And then Jesus gets a bit provocative with people. He says, you know the Queen of Sheba, she who I mentioned at the start of this talk, she traveled from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It's like, wow, this wisdom's amazing. It's revolutionary. Well, now, says Jesus, now one greater than Solomon is here. Like the wisdom of Proverbs, yeah, it's good. I want to show you something even better. Follow me to the cross. Lose your life and then find it. And when the first followers of Jesus began to understand this, whatever you think about faith and the Bible and Christianity, this changed history. Followers of Jesus began to realize, hang on, there's a greater life available rather than living for little old me. When things like plagues came to cities, everyone fled for their lives, but the followers of Jesus said, no, these people have worth and dignity. Let's care for them. And they often lost their lives in the process, but people had never seen community like it. Pre-Jesus, things like humility and forgiveness were seen as acts of weakness. Why do you want to do that? It's all about amassing power, being in control, seeking revenge. That all changed when followers of Jesus realized, no, 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 let's lose ourselves. Let's lose our right for revenge. Let's forgive even our enemies. It's rather than amassing power and glory, it's lay our lives down. And forgiveness and humility, generosity, giving your possessions away became acts of deep moral beauty. Changed history. And so I want to finish this talk by leaving us all with a couple of reflections. Firstly, about family, but more broadly about community. You know, I, I totally understand why those graphs that I showed you at the start of this talk go down when kids come along. I became a daddy just short of eight years ago. Since I became a daddy, I have had less time. I've had less energy. I've got less money. I've got less hair. All the freedom I had when I was single, that has well and truly gone. It has cost me so much. In fact, it makes you think, why would anyone want to be a parent? If you just view it that way. And yet, parenting does not make sense unless you also have a narrative of self-sacrifice from the one who is greater than Solomon. 
And I want you to know that I have discovered this, that since I have become a daddy, it has cost me so much. But as I have laid my life down for my kids, the more I do that, the other side I find joy and life and glorious freedom. I get to input into the most precious people on earth to me. Oh, it's cost me much, but I want to tell you I think it's worth it. And my satisfaction has gone up, not down. Why? Because I am following the one who is greater than Solomon. Hurts, but it's the best way. And what is true of nuclear family is also true of the family of God, the church. I want you to know this. If you join this community for what you can get, they will disappoint you. I know these people. They are disappointing people. But if you join this community for what you can give, for what you can contribute, for the part that you have to play, it may hurt, but if you serve, and if you give, and if you practice hospitality, you may have less time, less energy, and less money, but the other side of that, you will find resurrection life. That's the family of God. Second reflection would be this, that I often experience hard times in life. I imagine probably that every single person in this room is facing some kind of challenge right now. I have discovered that almost every single challenge that I face in life is either overcome or at least eased by knowing more of my perfect parent in heaven. I have some amazing parents. I'm forever grateful to them, but they, they were and are far from perfect. They'd often drift into these different boxes just like I do as an imperfect dad. But the more I discover Father God, who the one who is greater than Solomon revealed, I discover when I face challenges, I'm not alone. I'm completely and totally loved, so I don't need to be afraid. And he's got a better plan for me than simply living for myself. There's no pressure to perform anymore. If I fail, oh, I'm still totally loved. But I have also found this, that sometimes when I encounter challenges, it's because I'm living under the wrong boundaries. I've been following Jesus for many years, but there are little corners of my heart or I want to be honest with you, I'm still living for self. When I live within my own boundaries for my own freedom, I find I usually end up in trouble. Less happy, more entitled, and more disappointed. And as I begin to lose my life again and follow the one who is greater than Solomon, it costs. But the other side of that, I find the freedom to get me out of whatever challenge that I am facing. And so I want to finish by asking every single person in this room a question. If you're facing a challenge right now, if life is hard, for you parents when you're home just feels like hard work, do you need to know afresh this morning that you're totally and utterly loved? There's a perfect parent who's crazy about you. You don't need to be afraid. You are never alone. You've got the most amazing plan for your life, better than anything you can make for yourself. Or are you living under your own boundaries, for your own freedom? The little corners of your heart where you've grown a bit selfish and you've lost the joy of giving or serving or hospitality or self-sacrifice. Maybe it's time this morning to say, God, I want to follow again the one who is greater than Solomon and give up that portion of my heart. I want to embrace the cost that I might taste the resurrection life the other side. Discipline and affection, boundaries and love. It's not just the way to raise a great family, it's the way to build community because it's the way that our Heavenly Father deals with us.
Why don't we stand to our feet? Maybe the band want to come up. Uh, I'm going to pray for us before we sing a closing song. Uh, Before uh, I do, I want to leave just 30 seconds of quiet for you to reflect. Do you need to know again this morning God's unfailing love for you? So you don't need to be afraid that you're not alone. Or there are parts of your life that you need to say, no, I'm living for self. I need to die to that, to experience life the other side. It's just a moment of quiet for you to do some kind of business with God in your heart if you'd like. Then I'll pray and then we'll sing. perfect Father in heaven. I want to thank you that for every person in this room, for those beautiful children on stage and up in kids' work right now, that we are totally and completely loved. That we are never alone. That we don't need to be afraid. That you are with us every step of our journey. I want to ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would reveal more of the love of God for us and his good plans to lead us into glorious freedom. And I want to pray for each of us where we know there are corners of our hearts where we're still living for ourselves. Maybe we are feeling entitled or disappointed. Help us to discover again the enormous truth that you have a greater plan for us than simply living for ourselves and our own selfish ends. Teach us the power of laying down our lives and tasting your resurrection power the other side. Take us another step this morning on the path of the one who is greater than Solomon. Help us to take a step closer to Jesus. And as we do, may we taste the life and joy and freedom that he promises when we do. Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Fill this room. Help us to know the love and purposes of God again for our lives. I ask this in the name of Jesus and for the glory of his kingdom. Amen.